Welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me on this beautiful afternoon. In a recent podcast, I pondered whether there was such a thing as someone whose behavior was too horrible for him or her to become a saint. Intellectually, spiritually, theologically, we know that, with grace and firm repentance, no one is excluded from the call to sainthood and its coming to fruition. Even some really awful behavior has not prevented the fullest possible transformation so that a person might achieve heaven. God calls all of us, and each of us can look to one or more of the declared saints as a model of repentance and the final gift of the beatific vision of God Almighty. So, as bad as, say, a St. Paul was before the dramatic events at Damascus, when Jesus literally spoke to him and blinded him so that he might see, he is as much a saint as someone who rarely committed even a venial sin, if there is such a person. It's hard for us to get beyond the vile human acts before conversion and grasp the fullness of God's forgiveness and how he calls us to that very same forgiveness. As I said, I don't think I do forgiveness very well of myself or of others. And none of us can know whether at the last minute a person receives and accepts the same sudden offer of grace before death itself. Venerable Fulton Sheen offered a story, which I guess he heard, of a man who went to the top of a bridge to commit suicide, which, as we know, is still considered a mortal sin, where it is the intentional and deliberate act of taking one's own life. Today, with our psychological wisdom, we know that the intention required of the act that makes it a sin is a complicated determination, and the mere fact that someone has committed suicide does not necessarily mean that they are doomed. Someone who is so disturbed may commit the act and not have formed the kind of intent that is sinful, despite the horribleness of the act. But the point of Bishop Sheen's story is that this hypothetical man, or perhaps it was a real person, assuming that he did form this sinful intention, could, as he falls to his death, repent and be saved. We simply do not know until we reach the end and die. There is always a chance to take God's hand. Speaking of Fulton Sheen, he's often on my mind. He's a favorite as yet undeclared public saint. I check the net regularly to see if there's any movement on his cause. Fulton Sheen had made it to the second stage of the line toward sainthood. He had been declared servant of God first, and then he was declared venerable, and he was on his way to beatification. In fact, beatification had been approved by Pope Francis when just two weeks short of the actual ceremony, some bishop or bishops wrote to the Vatican asking that the process be stopped, presumably temporarily, while continued investigations by New York were going on 
regarding the child abuse scandal, not that he was accused of having committed child abuse, but that he might have been instrumental in moving various problematic priests around. Now, actually, there is no evidence that this ever happened. There was one incident, and it didn't involve a child that he presumably was aware of, but apparently there was no finding of any kind of misconduct on his part. Remember, there's huge investigations that go on before a person is even declared servant of God. And then these investigations continue throughout the process. So any potential allegations against him had been looked into from the point of view of the church. And this stall in the process came on the heels of the earlier stalls where New York and Peoria, Illinois, debated over the body of Fulton Sheen in a way that, personally, I found very distressing. And it seems that poor Fulton Sheen, even when he was alive, had a rather rocky relationship with the hierarchy. Just a little background on Fulton Sheen. He was born in El Paso, Illinois, in May of 1895. He was the son of a farmer, apparently had no inclination towards being a farmer, but did have an early inclination about being a priest. He was ordained over, now 100 years ago, on September 20th, 1919. He got a couple of graduate degrees at Catholic University, and then he also obtained a PhD at Louvain in Belgium in 1923 and a Doctor of Divinity degree at the University of Rome in 1924, and he was given great honors at Louvain as well. He was a very intelligent, very articulate, very assiduous priest and student. One of the things that he would say that he struggled with his whole life, in fact, when he wrote his autobiography, Treasure in Clay, was he struggled with vanity. He had a need towards honors, which were apparently frustrated by our Lord throughout his whole life. It seems that his superiors did understand a little bit of that even when he was young, because his very first assignment was at a parish in his hometown, which was now, by now, Peoria, Illinois. They were indeed testing his humility, which, as I said, he struggled with his whole life. Something with which I think most of us would resonate, and I know I certainly resonate in terms of how I've lived my life and the struggle, deep struggle with pride. After a short time, he was assigned to become a teacher at Catholic University. Then, very early on, in, say, 1930, he got his first job as a radio broadcaster and did this thing called the Catholic Hour. And then, some of you may remember, many will not, that in the 50s he began to do a show on television and actually competed successfully with secular shows of the time. Milton Berle was one of them, probably the prominent one. And he did a show called Life is Worth Living. You can find the stuff on YouTube. He is a bit of a dramatic speaker and probably for this time people would suggest that it's a little bit over the top. But I'll tell you something. The things he said, if you listen to his shows, are absolutely prophetic. He was a deep anti-communist. Remember, in those days, communism was a big 
big issue here in the United States and all over the world. Of course, it's still a big issue, but we pretend now that it's not. And anyone who suggests that the infiltrations that began in the 40s and 50s have come to fruition is considered someone with a tinfoil hat. Alas, that I think is a huge mistake. Unfortunately, Bishop Sheen crossed paths dramatically with a person higher in the hierarchy, that is Cardinal Spellman of New York, and got into a debate over the use of funds for the congregation of the propagation of the faith, and it was a battle in which the Pope actually sided with Fulton Sheen, and alas, Cardinal Spellman never forgave Sheen. He was ultimately given the title of bishop and shuffled off not to Buffalo, but to Rochester, where apparently, administratively, he wasn't as talented as he was in his oratory skills and in his philosophy skills, and had a rather short stint there. After his retirement from that post, he was named an archbishop by Pope Paul VI, and thereafter mostly did lectures and sermons around the country. Uh, one he did, you can find, again, most of the things he did you can find on YouTube, but he did one uh, that is called His Last Sermon at St. Patrick's Cathedral, not long before he died. I've said this before, but during this period, which was in the 60s and 70s, this was the period in which I was lapsed, so I wasn't paying any attention to the Archbishop, I'm afraid. And one of the things I missed was something really beautiful around uh, 1978 or 9, when Pope John Paul II came to St. Patrick's Cathedral and gave the Archbishop a most wonderful and beautiful hug and called him a good servant. When you see the video of that event and the pictures from it and you see the face of the Archbishop, he looks like a little boy who is being hugged by his father. Seems to me, if you do any reading about him or if you remember him, that to the ordinary Catholic, to ordinary old Catholic me, Fulton Sheen is the stuff of sainthood for having lived a life of heroic virtue, in part because of the things he did for others. He was known to have been responsible for the conversion of quite a few people publicly, and I'm assuming a number of people that we do not know about. And he had to battle his own need to be front and center, at the same time learning humility, which he had to because during the course of his life he was thwarted in many ways. He's being thwarted right now, it seems, in terms of the progress toward public sainthood. Clearly, you have to repeat, a saint is not someone who led a perfect life. A saint is someone who lived a life following Christ so as ultimately to reach heaven and then to be a public model for those of us who are also trying to reach heaven. And if you remember last week, we were talking about St. Paul maybe being too awful to be a saint. And there's always something in a saint's life that is a stumbling block for those of us who are seeking models. In the case of Fulton Sheen, it's not you know causing persecutions of anyone. It's relatively small for me. But as a lawyer, I have real trouble with it. And as a lawyer who prosecuted other lawyers for misconduct, I have real trouble with it. 
And it was something that was revealed not by Fulton Sheen himself, but by one of his biographers. And it was that he actually added to his resume a degree or a doctorate that did not, in fact, exist. It makes no sense to me, given that what he did achieve was so enormous, but obviously his pride, his sin of pride, the one he acknowledged, was such that he felt the need to invent another. Now, in the case of lawyers, and I'm sure in other professional discipline agencies, someone who does that can be suspended. Their license can be suspended for having lied on their resume. It's considered, I'm going to use an ancient term in terms of our work, my work as a, an ethics lawyer, it's called moral turpitude. Sometimes I think the devil puts these things out there publicly so that we don't look to someone as a model who otherwise should be. And there's a bit of a pretense on our parts that somehow or another we don't have things in our lives that would be public obstacles to our being declared saints if ever anybody was thinking of trying to do that for us. As it is, poor Fulton Sheen's cause has now been suspended almost two years, I believe, and it's dead silent in terms of whether it will ever be restarted again or whether New York will ever put out some kind of report that will put to sleep any accusations against the bishop. Meanwhile, as in all things speculative and unsupported, but regularly repeated, a reputation, a very good reputation, a man who lectured, sermonized, wrote books, one of the books that I actually have, has his signature, The Life of Christ, uh, pretty much authenticated. I keep it in my room and it gives me a great deal of encouragement is being besmirched without any real evidence while the overall picture of the man is exactly what human beings need in pursuit of heaven. So, today I'm wondering if Fulton Sheen is someone that is actually considered, quote, too rigid to be a saint in this modern world and is, in fact, being obstructed. The man was very direct about the church's teachings and we live in a world secular and theological that is in perpetual ambiguity. What's interesting in terms of how people view rigidity is that a couple of things he got into trouble for were actually things that one would look at as progressive. One was that he actually initially spoke out about the war in Vietnam. He was concerned about the American presence there, although he did not uh, adhere to the behavior of the anti-war movement. And he also got into trouble when he was in, I believe, Rochester because he wanted to donate some property of a parish to the homeless and to the impoverished. And he got into trouble for doing that as well from his parishioners and his hierarch colleagues. I think one of the concerns about the use of the word rigidity is that it's used improperly. If he were considered to be rigid, it was simply for adhering to the tenets of the faith. And that is the problem of today, where we have this sort of mishmash of ideas about what the plain teachings of the church are. So you have this kind of, this is very bad, this is something you must not do, but if you do it, we're not really going to do anything about it, 
And in fact, we're going to suggest that perhaps any response to it is untoward and unfair, even though what you did was very, very bad. So it seems like it really isn't very, very bad. So here's an example from Pope Francis just this last week. He said categorically that abortion is murder, even soon after conception, that's as far as you can go. That's the big one, murder. And the church cannot change its position on it. But then he complained effectively that some priests and bishops aren't adequately pastoral in dealing with the faithful in relation to it. Now, it's unclear what he means. He says that their response has been political. Political means that they've said this is bad and that there's a consequence, and that consequence is not receiving communion and excommunication. My understanding is that all those pastors have done is to take the extra step of telling those who procure or advocate abortion or implement policy and law to enshrine it are committing a grave sin, and if not repented of it, there is a grave consequence. Theologically, as I said, that's excommunication, which, by the way, is automatic. When Pope Francis says that the pastors are not being, quote, pastoral, I'm confounded by that, to be honest with you. What does the Catholic Church say in plain print about what happens when one of us commits a grave sin that is deliberate and without repentance? 1861, section 1861 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Quote, Mortal sin is a radical possibility of human freedom, as is love itself. It results in the loss of charity and the privation of sanctifying grace, that is, of the state of grace. If it is not redeemed by repentance and God's forgiveness, it causes exclusion from Christ's kingdom and the eternal death of hell, for our freedom has the power to make choices forever, with no turning back. However, although we can judge that an act is in itself a grave offense, we must entrust judgment of persons to the justice and mercy of God. Now, that latter part doesn't say that one must keep quiet and not say anything too definitive about the conduct of a person, Mercy of God means that it's kind of like the situation where the person between the bridge and the water says, I repent. So God's mercy can extend so far. It can extend as far as God wills, but that doesn't prevent us, nor in fact does it exclude us from the obligation to point out the dangers of what the person is doing in terms of their immortal soul. There have been bishops, I can think of Bishop Cordier alone, who has pastorally met with certain politicians we all know regarding the very active and unyielding positions they have about abortion on demand, and yet they persist and say they're devout Catholics at the same time, which is simply an oxymoron. When we are warned of excommunication, that our choices can ultimately come to a point of no return, when no other dialogue has succeeded, where the response is to say again, I'm devout, when that sin is public and open and continuous and notorious, 
then what is there left to do for the pastor? We are children of God, and as children, we sometimes need the reality of the potential of discipline when reason does not penetrate our pride. It just occurred to me that Bishop Sheen, if he does make official sainthood ever, for my money, he's a saint, he's someone I pray to as an intercessor, he could be the saint for the prevention of pride. Excommunication is, forgive the pun, a Hail Mary pass. It is medicine, the strongest possible medicine for someone persisting in sin. You're still Catholic, but you can't receive the sacraments until you repent of the grave sin. You can always come back. It isn't political. It is the very opposite of political. One might argue that it is enormously pastoral in the case of those of us who refuse to serve. There are a million things you can find that he wrote or that he said that make the points about him. The fact that he'd be in trouble today, that he would be considered too rigid, that his view of pastoral would not be the view of some leadership of the church, that seems, I say seems, to prefer the seepage of modernism and would allow each of us to persist in our sin for fear of invoking repentance or the consequence of the failure of repentance. Here's something I ran across that he said in 1936 that, as I said, goes in my mind to the idea that uh, it's his rigidity or what they're terming rigidity is what is getting in the way of his becoming a publicly declared saint. Quote, the final condition of the return to the father's house was a recognition, he's talking about the prodigal son, of the sense of sin. This condition is revealed by the following words of the parable. I will arise and will go to my father, and I will say to him, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. I am not worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Herein is combined the double element of true redemption an admission of sin. I have sinned and the need of penance. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Our blessed Lord never once hints in the parable when the young man returned with a face furrowed with the hard lines of sin that he ever offered any excuse for his sinfulness. There is no record, there is not even a hint that he attempted to excuse himself or to extenuate his prodigality. He offered no theory about sin. He did not say it was a fall in the evolutionary process. He did not blame his environment or his wicked companions. He did not tell his father that he had inherited a Freudian complex from him. He did not say that moral decline is only a myth and that sin is just an illusion. He asked no Lipman to write a preface to morals saying men could no longer live according to traditional morality and must therefore have a new moral to suit unmoral ways of living. He did not excuse himself by saying that a man is justified in sowing his wild oats and then forgetting living for the present and having no responsibility for the past. There was none of these things in the mouth of the prodigal and much less was there any such thought in his heart. Out of its torn and bleeding self there came only tear drippings, a deep recognition of the horror of sin and the need of pardon and redemption. I have sinned against heaven and before thee, Sheen adds, but sin 
is the one thing modern civilization will not admit. Instead, it believes itself incapable of sinning and places the blame not in man who violates the moral law, but in the moral law which it says is behind the times. The result is we are living in a time when old forms of sensationalism of a generation ago are now regarded as banal, when such words as obedience and purity, which once stood for the sacred, now in our era of carnality stand either for weakness or restraint of liberty. If there is any way of describing our civilization, it is to say we are at the penumbra, that is, at that point where light fades and shadows begin. We have not yet crossed the line, because whether the world admits it or not, it is still living on the spiritual capital which the church divided unto it four centuries ago. This is ordinary old Catholic me, parenthetically. I'm thinking that maybe we have crossed the line. The spiritual capital seems to be fading entirely. Now, again, I always have to remember that the gates of hell should not prevail against the church, but there's certainly a diminishment of the spiritual capital of such a level that it's almost imperceptible. Going back to Sheen's quote, everything that is good, everything that is charitable, everything that is noble in our civilization is a reflection of abiding Christian principles and a splinter from the cross of Christ. But the vision of the cross is fading. The borderland between light and darkness is growing dimmer and the world is about to pass over into the hinterland of darkness and ruin. The church has felt this moral decline. She notes the complete absence of rational objections against her. Never before has she been so impoverished for good, strong intellectual opposition as at the present time. There are no foemen worthy of her steel. The opposition today is not intellectual, but moral. Men are no longer objecting to the church because of the way they think, but because of the way they live. They no longer have difficulty with her creed, but with her commandments. They remain outside her saving waters, not because they cannot accept the doctrine of three persons in one God, but because they cannot accept the moral of two persons in one flesh. Parenthetically, it seems that he's talking about marriage here. Not because infallibility is too complex, but because avoidance of birth control is too hard not because the Eucharist is too sublime, but because penance is too exacting. Briefly, the heresy of our day is not the heresy of thought, it is the heresy of action. So, what do you think? Would he be considered too rigid in these days? Would he be cancelled by either the culture? Or would his spat with Cardinal Spellman be as nothing compared to the trouble he'd be in today for simply speaking the very things he spoke back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Clearly, I speak for no one officially, or unofficially, frankly. I offer an opinion. Just like COVID, real though it is, has become the, quote, dog ate my homework excuse for so many lapses in our society and so many edicts that go well beyond its purview, so I believe that the concern about whether Fulton Sheen ever did any improper assignments of priests who were predators is an excuse, a convenient excuse. Surely by now it is clear what he did and did not do. 
His life, as I said, was already seriously and exhaustively investigated before he was allowed even to be a servant of God. He led a hugely public life. He was assailed by his own cardinal, and even after he was vindicated by the Pope on an issue related to the proper allocation of resources, he clearly did not play the game that humans do inside and outside of even the most serious and beloved of organizations. Just like my friend said about other saints that have led very good lives and no one seems to be aware of them and no one presents them as the potential for public saints, so someone like Fulton Sheen we see today. We know lots of priests and nuns and lay people who are marginalized because of their adherence to the teachings of the church. Fulton Sheen spoke plainly. There was no equivocation. Souls cannot be saved with equivocation. Today, some of our church leaders seem to be appealing both to God and the world as measures of our belief and action, but they are too often inconsistent guides, more often than not, and the effort to mediate between the two leads only to confusion and probably to more sin and corruption because it allows for more and more rationalization. I've become very unclear about what it is to be rigid these days when it comes to church teaching. I've said in this podcast that far from being an opiate, to follow the faith as it has been handed down to us is a battle, a scourge, even in that most, if not all of its prescriptions and proscriptions for a holy life are, quote, rigid in this world where it seems to me none of the teachings related to family, children, chastity, life, or sin in any way apply. The teachings are unyielding, they are inflexible, unchanging, and therefore, yes, rigid. The Pope just said that abortion is murder. If someone were to be attacking your child or mother with a knife to kill her, what would be the proper response? Talk? Reason? It would be severe intervention to save a life. The inflexible and the unyielding would be a necessity to save a life. The same is arguably true of those who oppose abortion. They are staying the hand or attempting to stay the hand of those who would murder. The solution to murder of the body is unyielding. The solution to murder of the soul is arguably unyielding or add suicide of the soul. There is nothing, it seems to me, political about a pastor seeking firmly to save a soul from hell. Fulton Sheen knew that. He's still speaking to us. I propose that he is precisely what we need in this time of chastisement to remind us that we are not God. And while the actual God of the universe loves us so dearly that he will chase us with his grace until our very death, Rejection of his love and grace of our own free will has a dire consequence in eternity. And if there aren't any people to remind us of that, priests, nuns, bishops, lay people, there are going to be a lot of people in that hell that we tell ourselves is not to be taken seriously. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be one of them.
And so we end another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. I'm very excited to say I found myself on Audible, albeit I don't charge, and they don't charge for anyone to listen to me, which is fine. I'm not looking to make money at this juncture in my life. Would be nice, but that's not what this program is about. So you can listen to me on Audible, on TuneIn, on Amazon. It's amazing. And you can even like me on some of these forums if you do like me. I know if you don't, you shouldn't. <laughs> I'd be very sad, though, if you don't. In any case, I look forward to talking to you next week. <laughs>